Welcome back to the fifth episode of Staying Alive, a podcast series on contemporary poetry in crisis. I'm Adriana Jacobs, and in this episode, we'll be hearing from the U.S. poet Diana Coy Wynn. Many fine books of poetry came out in the United States last year, but one that stood out in particular was Diana Coy Wynn's debut collection, Ghost Of, which made it onto the prestigious National Book Awards shortlist. About the book, the poet Terence Hayes has written, These poems sing to and for the ghosts of identity, history, and culture. They sing like a ghost who looks from the window or waits by the door. Ghost of acknowledges that grief can be incredibly isolating, and that one's grief is not always translatable or comparable to another's. At the same time, the poems of Ghost of also explore how the grief state can open up a wider dialogue with the past, and with the voices that lie both within but also outside of the frame of our family pictures and memories. And it is in that space that we can connect with the grief of others, and where we can share our losses. Diana is currently completing a PhD in creative writing at the University of Denver, and on the eve of her winter break, we connected over Skype to talk about the perseverance of eels, technologies of printing, and how poetry allows for the possibility that our dead will remain present with us in one form or another. So I wanted to start off with asking you how this um, collection came together. I know you have an interesting uh, writing schedule, um, so I wanted to hear a little bit about the the process of um, composing Ghost Of. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who are not familiar, which is most people, but shocking to all, I think. I, I only write in 15 days, two 15-day periods a year. The goal is you have to write a poem, at least a publishable poem a day, which is a really difficult task, and it's very stressful. And the months kind of leading up to these periods involve a lot of different kinds of research, reading, preparation of various kinds. So the poems for Ghost Dub were composed in August and December of 2016, which seems pretty recent. And I feel like that's still pretty recent for me. And my brother passed away in December 2014. And I I would say after his after his passing, I mean, in terms of the grief and the and how I process that personally as opposed to my family, I didn't feel like I could really access a lot of emotions directly related to his death. But his death really kind of brought back to me in the present a lot of memories of our childhood and upbringing, which was quite fraught. It just took a long time for me to kind of confront his actions. And the other important fact is two years before his death in 2012, Oliver went around to all of the family pictures in the house in the middle of the night, removed them from the frames um, with an X-Acto knife and cut himself out and then put him back up. My parents never said anything or did anything, which is to say the pictures stayed up, the the cutout pictures stayed up and they stayed up until his death and they stayed up after his death, which is kind of, they, they, they were kind of awful totemic representations. And, and also, you know, before his death, they were harbingers of his death. It was just all awful. So I think around the first or second anniversary of his death, I finally 
wanted to do something to kind of counteract the power of those images. And the images are in the book. And I had my sister scan them and send them to me. And so this was, I think, August, August of 2016. And I just sat there in the middle of the night looking at these images. And I felt compelled in that moment um, just to start filling in the pictures. And what would happen if I began to fill in you know, the spaces where he had cut himself out. So the poem began with, you know, the image and then words within the cutout space and then words around the cutout space in the, you know, in, in the space of the photograph, except where it's been cut out. Um, so that's kind of like the, the backstory for Ghost Dev. There's so much I want to address. One of the most, I think, distinctive characteristics or elements of the book, which is the cutout shape. So these cutouts uh, that appear throughout the book, they're the, the white spaces uh, that clearly are sort of meant to reproduce um, the spaces in the photograph um, that indicate where your brother excised or deleted himself. Um, and I wanted to actually start and the beginning, um, the first page of the book that introduces us to the cutout shape, which is on um, page 11. And around this shape is the repetition of the name Oliver. So I feel in some ways this is arguably the first poem of the book. If you read it across, this name starts to break apart. Um, it becomes olive, from Oliver to Ver, you get the letters O-O, and then you get this really interesting word, Elver. And the word Elver refers to a young eel, and it reappears in various points in the collection. Was this page always part of the collection as you imagined it, or is it something that developed at a later stage? It had never originally intended to be part of the collection, but after I had exhausted my triptych series, which involved with kind of the cutout, there's one specific cutout which I which haunts me, which is the cutout which looks very much like the shape of a boy because it has a head and it has a body. And the other ones are more like shards, um, kind of geometric shards. And there's something really ghostly about just looking at that cutout. And so what I did was I cut out the cutout, which sounds really kind of abstract, but the cutout has some shadows, you know, of where the photograph hits the page. So it has a little bit of gray, so you can kind of see it. And so it was like a cutout of the white space. And I just kind of hung out with it, if you will, on the page. So Elver is quite important to me. Even though my parents gave us Western names, they are born and raised in Vietnam. English is not their native language. They have a hard time pronouncing our all the syllables of our names. So the, it, our names ultimately became, became reduced to the last syllable. So I was Na, my, my sister is Ni, and my brother was Ver. So it was just much easier for my mother to yell at us if she could just, you know, refer to us by single syllable names. Um, so Ver, the last, the last part of his name is also, you know, how he was referred to. And Ver also resonated for me because it was an echo of the word Elver. It's also the last syllable of the word Elver. I was watching a nature documentary about eels, um, as one does. <laughs> and I learned a lot. I didn't know about their different life stages, that they are glass eels, like, and they're so tiny. It looks like um, clear, clear worms, which sounds really creepy, swirling in a glass. Um, but I was interested in the Elver stage, which is the adolescent stage, 
because that's the point at which the eel journeys from the ocean deep to fresh water. And during this journey, it's quite treacherous for the usual reasons, especially because humans have now engaged in many of the rivers and streams and there are dams. But the eels, can they, they persevere and they do it quite singularly. And I was quite moved in watching, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole, we're just watching various elvers trying to climb up vertical walls um, moving on land um, and, they, and they actually don't look like snakes because they're 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 different I don't know how they look more like wiggling black pencils I, I don't know how to describe that which I guess sounds like a snake but there was I was just really moved by their determination to live and I don't know why it became a kind of animal figure that also kind of stood in for my brother in many ways. There's a really an interesting um, progression that's happening with the cutouts themselves. Because after this first cutout, which is, yes, very much in the shape of a little boy, we get to the, the next one. Um, and it's the first time we see the cutout in the context of the family picture. But this is from the series, uh, the title page of the section, Triptych, um, where we get the family portrait. And, and here the cutout is striking, but also very disturbing. It looks like a, the sort of little ghosts, the kind that terrorize adults in movies. Um, and But the what struck me was also that the rest of the family portrait is also unsettling because it's so blurred. It's almost like whoever was taking the picture um, as their hands were shaking. Um, and this isn't to say that, that the original picture has the, that effect, but the reproduction in your book certainly does. And so as a result, the lines of the cutout shape actually appear to be more clear in comparison to the rest of the family picture. And on the fam mm -hmm. facing page, you write, I cannot see the future for myself or any of my doubles, but I see the days ahead of him. And what I wanted to ask you is uh, whether or not poetry can provide that kind of clarity, um, or is it the poet's hand doing this shaking? I would say yes to both. Mm -hmm. um, your eye is so sharp. It began by accident. So I put an image into a word processor and then I accidentally pasted twice, right? So I pasted the image once and then I pasted it twice. And then pasting it the second time, it didn't overlap. When you create a text box and then you create another text box, they're never right on top of each other, just always like a few degrees away from each other. And that's what happened with the image. And it created this really eerie blurring. I thought it was quite apt because I'm revisiting, right, history. I'm not recreating history, but I'm revisiting history in the present and the past is also present. And it made sense to kind of make the image a little askew, but to keep the image as well. But then there's that kind of doubling effect that made a lot of sense to me. And so you were asking about clarity as well. I would say through poetry, there is absolutely a kind of clarity. Um, I like to think of poetry. I mean, I think it's it offers many different vehicles or, or uses within a person within a family, within a society, within culture. But one use, I think, is also a mode of investigation, which is different from journalism, but it's a lyrical investigation. So it it's it's much more elliptical. And I think because it can do that kind of elliptical leaping through time, through thought, 
through associations. It brings a kind of clarity because it weaves various different kinds of threads, time periods, memories, fictions, non-fictions together. And I think because it can move and, yeah, bob in and out of all of those different forms, it can bring a kind of um, distilled clarity about whatever is being examined or whatever is seen peripherally. Sometimes on one side of the page, there'll be the cutout shape, but made up of words. And then on the other side, a text where the cutout shape is a white space. But what's so interesting about the moments when we get this sort of word-filled shape is that the words don't entirely fill in the space. They leave gaps. They get cut off by the shape itself. Um, and in fact, in the poem Coda, one of the kind of shards of poetry that you offer includes the words, her mosaicing is slow, her eyes searching for the right shape to fill the gap, to bridge from here to there. That's on page 74. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, having gone through this process of both you know, dealing with white space and words around it, and also spaces with words filling in, what the limits of language are, and maybe poetic language specifically, to do this sort of work of filling in and bridging. Yeah, the the cutout acted as this portal through which I was able to move, um, to reach, in many ways, my brother, if, you know, to make contact, to address him, to look for him. And I do think that the words are a bridge, right? Words themselves, language, comprise of language, and language is the vehicle, even if we do not understand each other's languages. There are now many easy ways to translate. Um, But I think that there is a limit to language in the traditional sense, which um, I think of poems that move, you know, in the Western tradition from left to right and then top down, which the work in this book does. But I think... I needed to think of language also as um, image, to think of text as image. If we go back to kind of the original idea of, you know, each character, each alphabet is ultimately a kind of an image of whatever that character is. It represents something. So it is an image that we see which corresponds to a particle or part of part of that word or part of of that letter. I'm getting my names of things wrong. Um, But to use text ultimately to comprise an image and and what does that unlock um, in terms of how we comprehend what we see on the page. What we see first is the impression of the page and then we read the content of, of what we see there. Well, I think one of the things that interests me is that throughout the book, there is on the one hand, this use of language as a way to fill in space. Yeah. But then you also have texts where the absence of text puts pressure on the text that's sort of moving around it. Yeah. How you were sort of negotiating those two ways of using language, especially as a way of working through a family crisis or grief. It was actually quite easy to fill in the cutout space because it's just like working within a stencil or coloring within the lines. Yes, I mean, your margins are in various angles and 
they cut off the words, but I would just move, I would just then move the remainder of whatever that word was to the next line. So it was more about working in a really small form, small box. So that wasn't so hard. What was really quite hard was to create the text that fit the frame around the cutout. So the, the text which represents a verbal representation of the photograph. Because when I get to the cutout, I actually have to cut the word and move it across the cutout. And when I read that part of the poem, I do the same thing orally. So I, I don't know if this would be useful. So I can try to I can try to read one part of it so you can kind of hear what that sounds like. I'm listening to a needle drop. I am 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 listening to I'm dropping all the needles. I caught the keep on dropping the needles. I've always dropped the uh, needles. The needles are stacked in my palm, in the palm of my hand, of my mind. My hands include the environment of the needles. And, and it kind of goes on in that way. So on the page, writing it, and then also verbally when I have to read it, it reenacts what my brother has done right? How he has excised himself from the photograph and how he has also excised himself from life. And so there's a kind of visual, but also like somatic um, embodiment of that act for me. And I don't know what it's like for readers when they read it. I mean, the reader has to move over the white space to, to finish the word that is fragmented, fractured. It felt really powerful to do that to the words because it replicated in me like the grief that I felt, like the violence of what my brother had done. And in recreating that through text, I don't know if it was a way to like feel closer to him, but that tension is very much there and that tension is very purposeful. And it's also like, it's a reenactment. It's a kind of radical empathy. So this brings me also to the poem's title, Geotaku, which I learned that it's this Japanese method, a traditional method for printing, um, creating prints of fish. Uh, where uh, the artist would ink the actual fish after cleaning them and then um, pressing them on paper or pressing paper over them to create the imprint. And uh, looking at uh, images of Goyataku, you see that sometimes the imprint isn't entirely clear and sometimes it's incredibly clear. And in the book, one of the things that's so fascinating is that the filled-in cutouts of, of text are then laid out in different ways across a page. And um, I think the first time, it doesn't seem to create a very discernible shape until we get to page 53, where it's clearly in the form of, uh, of an eel, or what we would recognize as, a, as an eel or a snake. Um, and so then I was sort of thinking about these cutouts and how you're using them as a way of trying to make an imprint um, maybe of your brother, or in this case of the eel, which is so connected to the figure of the brother. I was really fascinated with the with the, this Japanese imprinting. I mean, I think of it in terms of how I understand it in American culture. I remember, you know, I've seen so many pictures of Fisher people, usually guys on boats, you know, with a picture of their catch, their swordfish or whatever. And you know, before photography, I love this idea of application of ink to the flesh of a fish 
and then to press that against paper, is that not a form of writing, right? Like ink to paper, um, but it's not a full capture, right? Because you, the, the ink will only go on some, some, some parts of the scale, but not on all angles of the scale. And so we do get an impression of the animal um, that was captured, at least the size of it. Um, and I love this idea of imprint of ghost images, um, which is just like a faint impression, but sometimes there's a lot of clarities. And I was thinking about the eel. I identified with the eel or identified the eel with my brother in many ways. It made sense to bring the text alive, to bring, so the text that I'm manipulating, I think I, I have never talked about them. So I don't know how to refer to them. I guess the eel cutouts or their eel meditations within the fragment cutout shape of my brother. So there are different kinds of shards and to begin to play around with the text, um, to move them in multiple different kinds of direction, to overlap them, it made sense to me, that kind of playfulness, especially because I think it brings a different kind of dimension to what the text is, is saying as, as, you, as it can be read on some of those pages. So I think, Diana, this would be a really great moment um, to ask you to read one of the poems. Um, this is A Woman May Not Be a Safe Place. A woman may not be a safe place. Melzack isolated young dogs from birth, protecting them from any painful stimuli until he himself began exposing them to burns, to pricks. The dogs didn't understand the source of these sensations and were surprisingly mute struggling to figure out how to protect themselves from further attack. A god let my mother suffer in Vietnam. Now we go on suffering after her. She shot a man, one that she knew. That was during the war, so there could have been others. A lover once pushed me into a ditch so he could help me up again. I was curious if you would cry... The mother met the father out west after they had rejected adopting names for themselves like Sharon or Sam, after they'd heard in church, the only time they went, that too much salt would make the, an infant's flesh too firm. Remarkably, the American doctor said to the mother, you have a sodium deficiency. Did my mother's son feel harm before he knew the name for it? We tell ourselves and each other's stories to help us understand the what and the why. Not all women do these things. Not all brothers do these things. When I was born, my parents put me on a rug on the ground and stood staring at me until the light outside dimmed. And then there in the darkening, we three were quiet for a while. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about this line, we tell ourselves and each other's stories to help us understand the what and the why. Is poetry part of this story making, um, part of this process of trying to understand the what and the why, or does poetry offer some alternative to storytelling? In I, think, I think both. I mean, the earliest form of of poetry was a kind of historical record through song, right? Because this is before I think written records. So like a bard, you know, a troubadour would, would kind of sing a song of a tale of 
And that's ultimately a story in time. Maybe some of the facts have shifted. But I don't think, you know, a lot of poetry written today, at least in in America, I don't think it, it functions in that same way. I mean, there's so much kind of other stuff that's happening. So, yes, a kind of storytelling, but fractured through multiple voices, um, but ultimately still to kind of comprehend or understand something, whether that's the current climate, the current political moment, the current crisis, crises, which we are um, a part of. Um, but I don't even know if poetry is still able to fully bridge that gap in understanding. But there's something within the investigation or in the meandering or in, in the play of words um, that helps me feel connected, I think, to a larger literary, but also just like cultural historical history. Um, but there's something kind of comforting within poetry as an art form which doesn't necessarily provide answers, but in that kind of mutual investigation, there is a kinship. In an earlier poem, you write, at the funeral, his hand was warm, where my mother would not let go. And I was thinking about poetry and keeping the, the brother warm. And then on the last page of the book, we get this line, let me stop your end. And I wanted to ask you, especially in light of this collection and this line, that what is it about poetry in your experience of working on this book that allows for that deferral? Or why does poetry even participate in this refusal to end? I think because, I mean, as long as the planet continues to exist, poetry will exist, you know, after people are born and die. So I think there's a kind of endlessness to poetry once it's created or uttered or exists kind of, you know, in print in, in some fashion or is in somehow some kind of circulation. Um, of course, I, I also understand, you know, not many people in the world's population actually reads poetry, um, which is quite a small, small niche. But I think it does serve as a kind of historical account and historical record as any other work, piece of writing, work of writing. But poetry is so much more personal and I don't know, it blends the personal and the political and the ineffable um, or as close to the ineffable um, as possible. And there's something really kind of lasting and, and transcendent of the laws of physics, I think, in, in the genre itself. And I think because poetry contains the record of what we have done, what we have said, what we have seen, um, and, I mean, at least historically speaking, the, the earliest forms of poetry, which is to say it's, it is essential. Um, I don't know how to speak to the fact that poetry is, is less read now than it had been 
in other time periods. But I think poetry has kind of metamorphosed in, in many ways, you know, beyond just books of poetry or a poem on the page. On that note, I want to thank you for being a part of this conversation, Diana. Thank you so much for having me and your thoughtful questions and your attention to the work. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for the opportunity. This episode features the poem, A Woman May Not Be a Safe Place, from Diana Coy Wynn's Ghost Of, published in April 2018 by Omni Don. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Israeli poet Tahel Frosh to talk about poetry and money. Staying Alive is an original podcast series created and presented by me, Adriana Jacobs, with editing by Daniel Bieber and Danny Cox, and music by the Zombie Dandies. Support for this podcast comes from the John Fell Fund. For more information about this episode, including materials that didn't make it into the final cut, visit the podcast website, stayingalive.show. <laughs> <laughs>